0: Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Kent is a former management consultant, corporate executive, and has a number of startups that he has. Exited to form Hudson Investing. So, Kent, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, and uh, what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So, uh, born and raised uh, in the Midwest in Indianapolis. And uh, when I got out of school, uh, you know, I always had known I wanted to, I always had kind of had the entrepreneurial spirit, always knew I wanted to own my own business. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to, to own yet and didn't really find that until much later, but but I always just had that in mind. And so as I was coming out of school, I thought that management consulting would be a great way to, to see a lot of different businesses and understand what works and, and what doesn't. And just get get a really good understanding of how to run a business for when when I found the right one for me. And so so I did that for 12 years after graduating, lived in Chicago and flew all over the country, helping businesses solve problems that they couldn't solve themselves. And so in that, in those 12 years, saw you know, hundreds, if not a thousand different businesses and got to see what works and what doesn't. And it was a really good education on on just how to how to run your own. And so um, in 2010, uh, some partners and I left the firm that we were at and we decided to start our own firm because we really saw a shift in the market. We didn't feel that the firm that we were at was was going to be able to pivot and make that shift. And so we decided to go and, and start our own and really focus on uh, in a particular area, and uh, you know, for a little bit of luck, and and for making the right choice and the ri- taking the risk, uh, we were rewarded, and that business grew uh, from five guys around a kitchen table to 95 employees and 30 million in annual revenue in about uh, five and a half years, and and then we exited that at the end of 2015, and that's really when my real estate career. Uh, got started in earnest. And so we had the capital from selling that business and decided to uh, start to diversify, right? I didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket. I had a stock market portfolio, but I'd not invested in real estate. So I started doing a bunch of research. And and like, I think a lot of people do, you, you find the people around you that you know, they're in real estate. And, and I started implementing some of the strategies that they were doing. Uh, for example, you know, buying buying a a note portfolio or creating a note portfolio and and holding houses on contract Um, started doing some fix and flips started buying uh, some singles and duplexes and built up a a small portfolio of about i think we had about 11 of those at at the peak and um and yeah and at, at that same time i started investing with others in larger multifamily. So I really learned about the syndication process and and what that really means is just, it's a fancy name for saying folks are pulling their money together to invest in something bigger and better than they could on their own. And so I realized I could actually invest with experts, with other people in in these deals. uh, And I was investing in in larger multifamily deals in that way. So I kind of was doing a whole bunch of different things to try to find my groove back then and figure out what would really work for me.
0: Awesome, so let's start at the beginning. Once you exited your company and you have all this capital to do something with, what made you land on real estate?
1: Yeah, real estate for a number of reasons. So you know, I wasn't looking saying, okay, I have to get into real estate. I really started looking at, okay, what are alternative investments outside of the stock market where I could start to diversify? Because that's what I was looking for, first and foremost, was diversification. And in knowing that I wanted diversification, I, I needed something that wasn't correlated with the stock market. Correlated meaning if the stock market moves up, that moves up, if it moves down, that moves down, right? So if the stock market drops, that drops too. I wanted something that wasn't related. And so um, real estate checked that box. It's like, okay, well, there's one. Real estate, as I learned, provides excellent cash flow. So it actually provides cash flow. You know, you're not just waiting there. Um, for for something to to happen you know five, ten years down the road and, and be paid out It um, provides you know much better cash flow than like a, a di- most dividend stocks for example. Real estate has the appreciation component because you know real estate I mean historically has, has appreciated and gone up and uh, and then real estate has tax savings because real estate's one of the only assets where even though the asset's actually in- increasing in value, you get to depreciate it and you get to, to take those losses and, and use those. Um, to save on taxes. And so it really was checking all these boxes. And I was realizing you put all these together, what kind of value that can create. And really uh, the light bulb went off and said, wow, I, I got to start investing in real estate. And so then I set out to find different ways to do that, right? Because there's a lot of ways that you can invest in real estate.
0: So tell us what your very first deal was. So you landed on real estate, it checks all these boxes. So you're, you've decided, okay, I'm going to do this. What was your first deal?
1: So my first deal would have been buying uh, basically creating a a note on a house. So essentially buying a house and then selling it on contract to, to someone else and holding the note on that house so holding the loan. Uh, that was the first deal that I did and I think I was getting uh, I was getting like eight or nine percent an eight or nine percent interest rate.
0: Okay. So let's talk to me like I'm three here. So you bought the house, you sold it to someone else, but owner financed it to them. So you're yep. getting that mortgage payment every month. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. And how many of those did you do? Cause you said you got into some fix and flips too. So, um, when did that come about?
1: Uh, about that same time. And so, uh, I bought four houses, uh, and sold them on contract and, and that was enough for me what i what I found out was uh, you know it, it's nice being the bank uh, that was kind of the the sell was oh you don't have to worry about you know the actual performance of the asset you're the bank you know worst thing happens then you can just uh, you know take over the property right and, and then you end up with the property if they default well what I found in reality was it, it was just as hard to collect those Principal and interest payments, as it was to collect rent, and um, and and it was really eye opening for me. About two years in, one of the people that I had sold the house to, they they then turned around and sold the house, and I got the HUD statement because I was I was getting my loan paid back, and said, "Wow, it's great! I'm getting my loan paid back. That that worked. I got my interest for that period of time, but the house doubled in value, and so the guy is doubling his money, and I'm getting my loan paid back. I'm like, okay, well." you know, I've got higher risk tolerance um, than just this debt. So I better start buying assets because I I want that. I want my money to double as well. And so I started looking at, okay, we need to buy assets. And so that's when really fix and flip started. I had a friend who had been flipping houses for about 10 years and was experienced. And so I said, hey, if if I fund you, you know, let's grow this. Let's scale this business. And we did. And we, like I said, we purchased about 11, Houses, um, all in kind of a lower, lower dot. I mean, we we're buying stuff for like twelve to forty thousand, and putting a significant amount into them, and then either flipping them or turning them into rentals. And so, and, and that worked well too. But the problem was, it's just not scalable. Uh, we just hit a really hit a brick wall on how big we could grow. And you start realizing, you know, what it takes to buy a house. Um, versus what it takes to buy an apartment building. And in many ways, buying an apartment building is is easier. And you can buy 100 doors at a time versus one door. Uh, And a lot of the tasks you have to do are the same. And so that's where I really saw multifamily as a way to okay, really start scaling and really start to to build out a sizable portfolio.
0: That's really interesting. And I hear a lot about note investing. I've never gone down that path myself, but that's a snag that I've never thought about is that if you're being the bank, you're missing out on the equity of actually owning the appreciating assets. So that's an interesting point that I have not heard made before. Um, all right. So let's talk about scaling. So the, I totally agree with you. Um, I went from buying single families, whether they were short terms or long terms, like we have a mix of both. But at a certain point, we were like, okay, We can buy 10 more of these single families and rehab them and do all that. Or we can buy 10 of them at one time in one building. And that's a little bit easier. So Mm -hmm. especially once you get to the point of being able to obtain commercial financing, like if you have a relationship with a local bank who wants to fund your deals, it actually is easier to get. An apartment building whereas at the beginning of an investment career when you may not have the experience to show a bank or you may not have a great uh, personal financial statement or PFS to show them it can be easier to get just a single family home which is kind of how I landed on starting with short term rentals is that it's really easy to go get conventional financing on a short term rental and then once you have a certain number of those and you have x amount of cash flow then it does make sense to jump over into that commercial space and and with the apartment building. So tell me about your first sure. multifamily deal. Let now that we're jumping into that side of things.
1: Um sure. So well I started in multifamily really like I said investing passively with other people. And so, you know, my first multifamily deals, my first probably 12 deals I think it is were were all passive investments, right? So investing with sponsors, with experts who are doing this, we're putting the deals together. And so those deals, um, were, you know, kind of all over the country. So, you know, Southeast and the Midwest, uh, Texas, um, really looking for some geographic diversification. Right. And then, and then just building relationships with, uh, with sponsors, I'd say the very first one I did was actually through a crowdfunding site and, um, you know, that one, I did two investments through a crowdfunding site. One, one went fine. Uh, the other one did, did not go well. The, other, the second one, uh, we actually lost our money on and actually still have some outstanding trying to uh, recoup because uh, the sponsor was just a bad guy. And, uh, and we didn't know that at the time. And so that was a, a big lesson learned for me because it taught me that all I was looking at at the time was the deal. And saying yeah it seems like a good deal it's in a good market like good location uh the metrics make sense but i didn't i wasn't spending any time vetting the sponsor like the person was actually running the deal right and uh well i mean the guy the long story short is the guy ended up committing fraud and all the investors lost, lost uh our, our money and we're still trying to call some of that back and that was. 2015 at this point and so that that was not fun but you know you chalk everything up to a learning experience and uh it wasn't real estate's fault it didn't turn me off to real estate it just made me smarter about what i should be looking for when i look to invest with somebody
0: okay i want to dive into this a little bit because there are lots and lots of syndications out there lots of different routes to take so how when you're looking at these things so i've only invested in one syndication uh, and for me, it was more of a networking thing than a passive income thing. So, uh, the, the guys running it, the GPs running it own a lot of individual outside of their syndication, but own a lot of, um, multifamilies in a market that I am buying multifamilies in. So as a way to kind of like get my foot in the door with them, my husband and I, both of us, uh, and to say, Hey, you know, we're serious. If you ever want to sell any of your. Of your personal ones, I almost called them single families. Any of your non-syndication deals, like we're serious, mm-hmm. here's some money for your syndication on, on this bigger deal that you're doing. You know, hit us up whenever you need to unload some of these smaller ones to roll it into your syndication, and it worked. So we've yeah. gotten two off-market deals from those guys. So it's a really great way to network. Uh, that's off-topic. I want to hear about what went wrong. As much as you can say, I'm sure there's non-disclosures and things like that at play. But I want to hear what went wrong and what you would have done differently in terms of how a new investor should vet when they're looking into a syndication. How they should vet, uh, you know, the people that are running it.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So, what went wrong? I mean, I mean, essentially, essentially, when you go out and get a loan uh, from. well, well, really anybody, uh, but especially an agency like Fannie or Freddie, um, you can't then go out and get other loans, uh, and collateralize them all with the same property. And, uh, so that's a no, no. And so when you, when you do that, you get in trouble and, and, and this person got in trouble and, uh, and ended up tripping his loan covenants and, and losing the property. And so, um, I think more important than what happened is kind of, you know, yeah, what's the lesson learned? The, the lesson learned for me is I've kind of boiled this down into a, a formula. And, um, you know, I so I look for, you've got to look at it like this. When, when you're looking at a deal and you're looking to invest with somebody else, it really does start with the sponsor because a, a good sponsor can save a bad deal and a bad sponsor can kill a good deal per my Experience right, and the the sponsor is the person that's really making those decisions right, and so they're the ones that are really driving the business plan and and the most important person to making sure that you're actually going to get the returns that they're they've put on that spreadsheet. And so I think you have to look for four things. I think first and foremost it's integrity, uh, which is probably the hardest thing to to nail down. But I think you at least need to have a conversation with the person and make sure that you get that you know you get a positive gut feeling and that. Kind of jive with what they're saying. You know, I think you can, and then I think other ways you can look at that is just through track record, right? So, integrity is it a person with integrity? Is it someone that you jive with? Is it someone that in your gut you feel like is going to act in the right way even when you're, you know, there's no eyes on them, right? And I think that's most important. Second is a track record. So, do they have a track record of success? And I know that everybody has to get started. Like I had to get started in real estate too. At a certain point, I had no real estate track record, but I think it's important to have some sort of history of success. Maybe it's business. Maybe it's in some related field, something that you can communicate how uh, your success in that field is going to translate into real estate. Right. So I think track record is important. Then as you build up a portfolio, it's important to be able to just show wins. Right. So I think track record, um, I think they've got to have skin in the game. So I, like, one of my criteria for investing with somebody else is I won't invest in a deal unless they're putting money in the deal themselves. And I don't, I expect the same for my investors too. So I invest in, e- in each of my own deals. Like I wouldn't invest in something if somebody came to me and said, Hey, this is a great idea. I'm not putting any money in, but like you totally should put money into this deal. Uh, it, you know, it just, it, it would sound fishy to me. And so they got to have that. They got to have, skin in the game. And then I think they just like they've got to have a certain financial means because at the end of the day it's the sponsor's job I believe to prop up the deal in times where the deal's not doing well, to get the investors through and make sure that the investors are still made whole in the end. And if you're kind of just moving from deal to deal like paycheck to paycheck, um you know, if the sponsor goes goes bankrupt or one deal over here goes bad, like what is that? It can cause a domino effect to all the deals that they have in play. And so I think it's really important uh, that they have just you know a certain amount of financial mean, means to be able to cover uh, things that may not may not be expected. And so that's like those four things are really what I look for when I'm evaluating a deal and a sponsor. And then only once you know the sponsor is somebody that you want to work with and checks those boxes, should you spend any time looking at the market and the deal. Um, and it's market and deal in those levels because you can't, you know, you can buy the best deal in the worst neighborhood and that's, that's going to be a, a, a terrible deal. Uh, and so you got to make sure it's in a good market. It's a place people want to be. And only then do you actually start to dig into the deal and make sure like that's the build, the right building to buy.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So I have one more question on investing with other sponsors before we get into your specifics. So sure. When okay, so you vetted a sponsor, you're like, okay, I like this person, I like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at the deal, how do you vet that?
1: Gotcha. Well, I it really comes with, I think you really have to look into their assumptions, right? Because you can make a spreadsheet say whatever you want it to say, right? Like, I could tell you every deal I do, I'm going to get you a a 30% return, right? Or a 50% return. But like what are my assumptions? What has to happen for that to actually occur, right? And so I think it's important for investors to really understand and then challenge assumptions. And I think some of the some of the biggest drivers of value are going to be what is it what is the cap rate? Like what cap rate are they going in at? More importantly, what cap rate are they planning to sell at? You know, and, and is that realistic? Like if you see a deal where, like what, what I do and, and what, a, what a lot of good sponsors do is we're expecting to sell at a higher cap rate than than how we went in. And because you're just building conservatism and you're building that cap rate expansion into your model. And so I think if, if people are doing, if not doing that, just saying, well, whatever the cap rate is today, we're going to sell at that same cap rate in the future. Well, then if the cap rate moves up on you, we, which the easiest way to think about it is as the cap rate goes up, the value of property goes down, then you're, not, you're already go- not going to achieve those expectations. So I think you, you got to look for people that are going to you know, under-promise and over-deliver by building these conservative assumptions in. I think you look at cap rate, I think you look at growth assumptions. So what are the rent and other income and expense growth assumptions, right? And again, are those realistic in that market? is it is it what's happening are they are they assuming because like rents have been going crazy the for the past year right and so indian i'll just use indianapolis because that's where i live indianapolis has historically been a very steady kind of 3% rent growth market well indianapolis rents grew um, depending on what you look at 10 to 12% last year and they're they're on pace to do the same or even more this year but if i'm looking at somebody's underwriting and they're projecting that's going to continue for the, the foreseeable future for the next three to five years, I'd say that's probably unlikely, right? It's probably unlikely. At a certain point, there's going to be a, a reversion back to the mean, right? Back to the averages. Um And so when I'm underwriting deals, you know, we're still, I mean, we're maybe growing rent at 5% when rents are growing at 10%. But again, I'd rather have that, I'd rather just overperform, right? I'd rather, if the deal looks good where we're at, then I'd rather have that all just be gravy on top. So I think you have to look uh, assumptions and how realistic they are I, and then i think you need to look at the debt because a lot of people focus a ton on the equity right and what are my equity returns going to be and what's my upside my upside i think really smart investors focus more on the downside and, and i think one of the the number one way that you lose your money on a deal would be to default on the loan i mean that's really one of the only ways where you can get the deal taken away and lose your money and so you got to look at what kind of loan are they doing? Is it variable or fixed rate? What are their assumptions? How long is the term, right? Are they assuming that they're refinancing in a certain year? Like when we do our underwriting, we don't assume a refinance. We, we will underwrite it and say, here's what it looks like if we just held it the whole time. Because if we refinance, inevitably the numbers are always going to look better. And so, but what if we get there in year three and for whatever reason, market conditions, we can't refinance or interest rates are, are through the roof, right? Right. So I don't like to see refinance baked in um and I like to see that the again the debt assumptions the loan to value right how much leverage you're taking what's their debt coverage like debt coverage means how much is their income above their debt payment so again it's like the more narrow that is the less income can drop before you're you can't pay your mortgage anymore and so those are things that that I would really look for I mean there's a I honestly have a list that I've created over time of like 35 items but Those are some of the top ones.
0: Awesome. That's really good information, by the way, because we don't do a lot of episodes on this type of investing. So I think for people who are interested in making the jump from short term to getting into larger multifamily, this this is really good info. So we've talked about how you got started and then investing with other people. So let's talk about Hudson Investing a little bit. What do you guys do at Hudson Investing?
1: Yeah. So at Hudson Investing, we focus on acquiring underperforming properties in outperforming markets throughout the Midwest. So I'm based in Indianapolis and, and we have properties in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky currently. Um, and we, we kind of look through throughout those states and then Tennessee, uh, Northern Alabama, Northern Georgia uh, as well. And so what we're looking for are you know markets with growth and we're looking for and we're looking for properties that that are undervalued and so uh, it's very much a kind of a, a very vanilla value add strategy value add meaning that we are buying properties that are already cash flowing right they're not um they're not distressed so if you have distressed over here and you have turnkey over here distressed meaning the properties aren't making money you have to you have to pump cash into them until you can get them to a point where they can make money. And that's a higher risk for reward, right? Like it's more risk, but there could be a higher reward. It's just less likely. Turnkey over here is low low risk, lower reward, right? Because there's nothing, you can't really force appreciation. You can't really improve the property. You're just kind of taking organic organic rent growth and hoping that that continues. Well, value add kind of sits right in the middle, I think it's a marriage of both. Where I think to me, it's the best blend of risk and re- reward, value add. Meaning the property is cash flowing. The property is stable from an occupancy standpoint. We just see deficiencies that we can solve to help it make more money. Oftentimes, it's because you know maybe it's a mom and pop style management, right? Like we we've bought several properties from long term owners who it's their only property and they they just don't have the most sophisticated management and and they don't uh mark their rents to market and push their rents. Um, and they're just not realizing all that they can out of the property. And so that's a clear deficiency we can solve. We can come in better management, better manage it, renovate units, and, and we know that we can f- create value. We can increase the net operating income, which in turn, the thing I love about commercial properties is every dollar you're increasing that NOI. In the market now, you're increasing the value of the property for anywhere from $20 to to $25 typically. So you can force appreciation of the property. You're not just relying on the market around you to increase like you do on some of the smaller residential.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much like kind of how syndicate, not how syndication works because there's a lot more more to it than that. But I see a lot of people uh, who want to come in and syndicate, buy a bunch of single family short term rentals and Mm -hmm. have a big fund to do that. And to me, I'm like, I don't know if that works the way you're thinking it's going to work because They're still appraised as residential assets. So it doesn't matter if the property is a primary home and makes zero dollars or if it's a short term rental and makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, it's still worth what the residential comps are. Whereas in multifamily, you can force that appreciation because the value is more based on what the property makes. So, um, that's something that I hear a lot about, and a lot of people say, Well, why why aren't you doing why aren't you syndicating short terms? And I'm like, Well, because it doesn't really make sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's you know it's got to be it's got to be just more of a, from a cash flow standpoint, right? I mean that's yeah. the thing that you can control. You can't control the value as much on those on those singles. So yeah, I mean I think it's a great point. But I think that's one of the, the benefits of why multifamily and why I really it was one of the main drivers of why I moved to multifamily and really kind of fell in love with it was just the the val the ability to control your own destiny, if you will, of being able to just make changes, increase increase the income. Better management. Uh, oftentimes, the properties we buy uh, were built in the '80s and '90s, and they're getting older now. And uh, we we don't buy a lot of properties earlier than the '80s, just because to me they're they're getting too old. Every once in a while, we do. It's got to become kind of a diamond in the rough. But we buy a lot of these properties, and and the owners just didn't have enough capital to really keep up with them. So what we're able to do through a syndication is bring an infusion of capital, really improve the property. And, and make you know a massive change, do a facelift on the entire property in a matter of 12 months. And turn around, and it's a totally new property. And so I think that's one of the values of being able to infuse that capital. And that's how we, we create a ton of value in these properties.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about if I'm an investor, again, we're, talk to me like I've never done it before, like I don't know anything sure. about it. I'm an investor and I'm listening to this show and I'm like, I like this Kent guy. I like the way he's running his business. I want to go invest with Hudson Investing. What qualifications do I need to have as an investor to be able to get into one of your deals?
1: That's a really good question. And it, it depends on the type of deal that we're doing. And, and to, to try to break this down as simply as possible, um, these type of, of syndications are governed by the SEC. And so there are guidelines because at the end of the day, we are creating a security. What you're really buying it are shares in an LLC. And the only thing that LLC does is own an asset. So, but that's how you—that's what you're actually buying, or shares in an LLC, and that's how you get your percentage of of the property, right? Um, So they are governed by the SEC, and so we we have a lot of guidelines that we need to follow, and and there there's many different types of of deals you can do. The two that most syndicators use are what we'll call a 506B deal and a 506C deal, and those are just like just like you hear, uh, you know. the term like a 1031 or a 401k or whatever, those are all referenced from like the IRS guideline numbers. Same thing with a 506B or 506C. What a 506B deal means, um, which, which we do do some of, uh, are that really it's meant for friends and family. So the important thing of a 506B deal is, is there's not a requirement to be an accredited investor. So, an accredited investor is something that's important to understand. It means that you have either, uh, if you're if you're single and file uh, and don't file jointly, you have to make for the past two years over two hundred thousand in income and and have that and be projecting that for the foreseeable future. If you're filing jointly, it's three hundred thousand again, past two years or for the and for the foreseeable future, or you have to be have at least a million dollars in net worth not including your primary residence. And so I think that that usually trips people up. You got to make sure not including your house. And so if you can meet either income or net worth requirements, you are an accredited investor. Um, and if you are an accredited investor, then you have more of these types of deals open to you. But but So remember what an accredited investor is. Think about 506B. You don't have to be an accredited investor. I'm able to bring in 35 up to 35 non-accredited investors into a 506b deal, um, but the important thing is we have to have a substantive pre-existing relationship, and that's why it's really more of like a friends and family deal because you have to know these people and have a substantive relationship before you um, ask them for money, essentially. And so, um, so I couldn't just Avery like we just met today. I could not. Say, hey, I've got this deal, it's a 506B deal. Love for you to invest in it. Right. Um, that would, that would not be, that would not be right by the guidelines and not something that we would ever do. So the important thing there is to build, if you're not accredited, is to build relationships with sponsors ahead of time and have conversations with them. I mean, there, there's no hard and fast rule for a substantive relationship, but what a lot of people in the industry use is to have kind of three touch points over a 30-day period uh, before to build up a relationship, understand goals, different things before you would ever present them with, with a deal and with with an investment opportunity. And, um, so that's a 506B, right? A 506C deal is for accredited investors only, but you're able to, uh, what's called generally solicit the deal. Meaning I can post a Facebook ad and say, Hey, I've got a deal to invest in. Uh, here's what the returns are going to look like, who wants to invest. And so you you really open yourself up to a broader market of people, but everyone has to be accredited. So really it depends on what type of deal structure it is, uh, and and what type of deal is open to, uh, to folks, whether they're accredited or not, are the type of deals that you can do. So we, we do a mixture of both. Uh, we started out like many others doing more 506B deals because I was raising money from friends and family and past coworkers and folks that I knew. And then as we've grown, we've started doing more 506C deals because my network has expanded uh, and we've added more accredited investors. And I have people that are referring friends, you know, other accredited investors uh, or accredited investor groups that are coming in together. And so uh, it, just, it just depends on the type of deal and, and what's right for that deal. I know I kind of went on a long tangent there. So I, I, let me know if I didn't answer the root of your question.
0: No, totally, totally. So I I do, that did raise a question for me. So 506C, you can publicly market to all accredited investors. Or if they're accredited, great, they can invest. 506B, mm-hmm. do you think that since it's something you have to have a pre existing relationship with people for, do you think that that's how a lot of these guru courses and boot camps, et cetera, came about from that are being run by the these major syndicators so that they can establish that relationship with investors that aren't necessarily accredited yet but you know this way they're able to broaden that pool of people that they're allowed to have invest as people that they know
1: you know i mean that that I'm, i would imagine that's probably part of the strategy in doing that I, I think you know i think besides the fact that they they make a ton of fees off of training and, um, and, and yeah, you really, and I think it provides them with opportunities to partner with folks on deal. You know, I know a lot of those, of those guys will partner with their students and so it creates tremendous deal flow, uh, an opportunity for them to, to get into deals uh, that they may not have known about. So I think there's a lot of benefits uh, in doing that, but yeah, I mean, I, it makes sense. I never thought about that way, but I think to your point, yeah, I mean, that, it's a way to create a substantive re- relationship.
0: I just thought about that. Cause there's a few people that I've known over the course of the years outside of my investment career that when they found out that we were into real estate investing, then they started really trying to like, Oh, you should come. I'm working with so and so. And we have this big weekend, uh, next weekend you should come down and, and network. And then, Oh, by the way, it's $50,000. And we're like, um, yeah. no, thanks. But, um, <laughs> It it kind of struck me when you were talking about that, that of course they're making a ton of money just on the fees, but it also opens up a lot of opportunity.
1: absolutely. No, I think you're right. Yeah.
0: So uh, last three questions of the show. Thank you very much for coming, by the way. Uh, We ask everyone these questions. The first one is, what advice do you have for 20-year-old Kent?
1: That's a good one. Uh, Quit messing around with management consulting buy a duplex and start house hacking and just, and just work your way up. That's what I tell everybody uh, that comes to like, so I host a meetup in Indianapolis and a monthly meetup. And we have a lot of new or aspiring investors that come. And when I used to, when I first started the meetup a couple of years ago and people would ask me, you know, how do I get started? I would, I, I would kind of just, there's so many ways. Right. And I would kind of, and I've done a lot of them. So I kind of throw this at them and just kind of see their eyes glaze over and their hair shoot back. Right. And <laughs> so I really narrowed it down to like, okay, well, what's like really the one thing I would do. And it, it's, it's absolutely house hack. Um, yeah. That is the
0: easiest and like most cost-effective way to get started. I think.
1: A hundred percent. You learn how to manage, and you get somebody to pay uh, your mortgage, and I mean, there's just so many benefits. And I think, and like, if you live there for two years, uh, at least in Indiana, you live there for two years, you don't have to pay uh, capital gains on the sale. And so, if you do that every two years and move, you know, but if you're 20, by the time you're 30, now you've got five properties. And I bet you've got a really solid base of income to then go and 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 kind of catapult off of, right? And so I think that's a great strategy.
0: Absolutely. And so this question, we might've already answered it. Uh, what advice do you have for a new investor getting started today besides house hacking?
1: <laughs> B- besides house hacking.
0: What's number two?
1: I mean, just start networking. Like, real estate is all about relationships. It's all about your network. You, if you're going to be successful, you got to get out of your comfort zone and you got to get in front of people. You know, find your local meetups that are going on. Maybe it's there's RIA meetings going on. Um, it depends what you want to do, right? What your strategy is, but like find people in your market that are doing that and start networking with them. I, I think just being an entrepreneur in general. Uh, you'll be in the minority uh, of most people, and most people will tell you you're crazy. Uh, if you're if you're trying to leave a full time job to go and be a real estate entrepreneur, most people will tell you you're you're crazy. So I think it's important to surround yourself with like minded people that can support you, and you can you can get some positive feedback versus you know sitting around the Thanksgiving table and everybody telling you you're nuts for
0: for what right. you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree with that. And last question: What is your favorite book that has impacted your mindset?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think the hmm, I think the book that had the there's two books that have had the biggest impact on my mindset. One would be Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which is kind of a you know oldie but goodie classic on mindset. The other is is uh, Awaken the Giant by Tony Robbins, and uh, that one that one I think is great because it's it, a lot of practical things to do to really, really improve your mindset from, you know, goal setting and how to do it, how to go about that. And, um, kind of just, just the, a lot, it's a foundation for a lot of the things he teaches, you know, on how to create and maintain a good mindset. And so I think both of those books are really powerful.
0: Awesome. Well, that is it for the interview on the short-term show. Thank you so much for coming. And if our listeners want to get a hold of you, want to learn more about you, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. If they want to get a hold of me, uh, they can find me at Kentrider.com. And that's, that's my home base. Uh, They can also reach out to me on social. Say, I also have a podcast that's called Ritter on Real Estate, where we focus on uh, more multifamily and, you know, larger commercial things. Um, But, you know, very similar style. And, um, Yeah. I mean, and then outside of that, um, you know, I think, well, I think that's probably it. Those are probably the best places to to track me down.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, that's enough, enough ways for people (laughs) to find you. Well, Kent, thanks again so much for coming on and we will catch you later.
1: All right. Thanks so much for having me on.